Spanish revival architecture is everywhere in coastal California, becoming more common the further south you go. But no city has identified itself as strongly with Iberia as Santa Barbara. From the Presidio and the Mission, two of the very few original Spanish buildings left in town, to the much more modern and more palatial County Courthouse and Arlington Theater, downtown Santa Barbara is a dreamland of white, stuccoed walls, ornate tilework, and courtyard gardens. It's an homage to a past that isn't all that distant. The Spanish only really cemented their foothold in California as the U.S. declared its independence out east. But one especially lovely collection of buildings tucked away behind the mission at the north end of town contains relics of a much older Santa Barbara. The most ancient of their stories go back millions of years, and because the city occupies a thin strip of lowland between the Santa Ynez Mountains and the Pacific, almost all of them involve the ocean. The Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History's Geology Hall is home to some fossils of animals whose relatives you might spot in the city's harbor today, including beautifully preserved crabs and pipefish from the local Monterey Formation. Fossils like these might make you tempted to envision the California coast looking essentially the same way 15 million years ago as it does today, suspended in time the same way that Santa Barbara's architecture aims to be. But the star specimens in the hall will quickly show you that change is central to the story of California's coastal seas. One is a bird, but like none alive today. Osteodontornis was huge, for one thing. With a wingspan pushing 20 feet, it was close to the largest bird that's ever lived. But its weirdest feature only becomes clear when you look closely at the fossil and see that its long beak had teeth. In fact, these aren't true teeth, but spikes growing from the animal's bill and it's not hard to guess how they used them. Its fossils have been found in the same Monterey formation that yielded those gorgeous crabs and pipefish, meaning that this was a seabird, using its toothy beak to snatch fish from above. Nearby are two skeletons of an animal less obviously tied to the ocean, but just as fundamentally shaped by it. They're mammoths, close relatives of Asian elephants common in Ice Age deposits across the Northern Hemisphere, but with a major twist. These mammoths were found on the Channel Islands, the otherworldly archipelago that parallels the Santa Barbara coast many miles offshore. Elephants are excellent swimmers and commonly show up on islands. During the last ice age, when water levels were lower, the Golden Gate was a river mouth and there was less water between the mainland and the Channel Islands. Crossing the Santa Barbara Channel would not have been a huge challenge to these mammoths' ancestors. But the climate of the ice ages was a chaotic one. And when temperatures warmed, ice melted, sea levels rose, and the island mammoths became stranded. One of the recurring themes in island ecology is that, when isolated, evolution drives small animals towards larger sizes. See the Angel Island Mole from last season's finale. And makes larger species small. Elephants and their relatives are not exempt from this evolutionary rule. And though the reasons for it are still debated, the remoteness of the Channel Islands fostered a population of pygmy mammoths. Pygmy, of course, is a relative term when you're talking about elephants. These animals would still compare well with a mid-sized cow, but the fact remains that the changing seas of Central California gave the world one of its great biological oxymorons. Change is a constant in the deep history of the coast, not just of the organisms that lived there, but of the land and seascapes themselves. Rising and falling sea levels have, as we've already seen, shaped everything from San Francisco Bay to mammoth evolution. The movement of the San Andreas Fault has ripped apart and transported huge tracts of land, 
while changing climate impacted life on land and at sea in ways we're still racing to understand. Change can happen on much smaller timescales as well, both from natural causes and because of the impact of one especially successful and widespread species of primate, and it's here, in the largest city between the Bay Area and the L.A. Basin, that we begin our exploration of how we have altered the teeming seas of California, and how we might scale back the most destructive of these impacts. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and this is the final episode in a four-part series following the course of the California Current to explore the ways in which it shapes the Golden State's coast and its wildlife. If you haven't listened to those episodes already, I suggest doing so now, since we'll be delving deeper into concepts and species introduced earlier. Once you're all caught up, join me back here and we'll head to Santa Barbara, where the cold waters of the north collide with warm currents from Mexico, and where we can best appreciate the past present, and future of humankind's relationship with this diverse shoreline. thing about the coastline between remote and inaccessible Point Conception and Santa Monica on the doorstep of Los Angeles can be appreciated from nearly anywhere. But let's begin at Stern's Wharf, Santa Barbara's famous pier and home to the Natural History Museum's Sea Center, a fantastic little aquarium. On a clear day, you can see Santa Cruz, one of the Channel Islands, 25 miles away. Even on a cloudy or foggy day, more common here than you might expect thanks to that temperature differential between Californian air and sea, You can spot pelicans, seals, sea lions, and dolphins offshore. Beautiful views and bountiful sea life are the norm on this coastline, though. What's unique about the view from Stern's Wharf is that it's to the south. From Point Conception to Washington's Cape Flattery, the Pacific coast runs uniformly north to south. The same trend continues from L.A. to Baja, California, but with the exception of a dogleg near Ventura and Oxnard, The side-by-side movement of tectonic plates along the San Andreas Fault has resulted in a west-to-east running coast around Santa Barbara. This quirk of geology has enormous implications for everything that lives here. Like the coast, the California current flows north to south, but when the shoreline curves eastwards, the current does not. It flows away from land at Point Conception, bringing its cold waters with it. An offshoot of the current does wrap around the most distant of the Channel Islands to circle back towards land, but as it curls around the archipelago, it interacts with another current. 
The Davidson Current is formed by exactly the same massive forces as its northern counterpart, but because it comes from the south, it carries warm water with it. Calm as they may seem from the wharf, the waters off of Santa Barbara are a chaotic mixing zone where arctic and tropical waters meet. The result is one of the sharpest breaks between marine ecosystems in the world. Much of the marine life familiar from further north in California can survive here. You'll still see kelp forests, and Santa Barbara Channel is one of the few places in the world that equals Monterey Bay for spotting great whales close to shore. What changes once you pass Point Conception, though, is the number of warm water species. A particular favorite of mine that you can see in the sea center is the California moray, a member of a group of eels usually associated with the tropics. The warm and cold water currents wax and wane with the seasons. If you're in Santa Barbara in the spring or summer, the California current is strong and cold water predominates. In the fall and winter, it's the Davidson current that exerts itself, so exactly what the water temperature is and which animals you're most likely to see depends very much on when you visit. But regardless of whether it's mores or mola molas, you will see marine life in abundance. And just as it points further north, the effects of these rich seas reach inland, supporting everything from the unique plants of the chaparral to the iconic California condor. We too are a land-based species that's benefited from this oceanic bounty, and as archaeological sites on the Channel Islands and the traditions of the indigenous Chumash people show, we've been doing so for an extremely long time. Nothing speaks more eloquently to the connection between human culture and marine nature than the blend of art and science that is shipbuilding. And while you can see ships of all shapes and sizes in the harbor around Stern's Wharf, there's only one type of vessel that is a true local specialty. For a long time, your only option for seeing a Chumash Tomo was to visit the Natural History Museum, where one of these large canoes built in the early 20th century hangs from the rafters. You can get a closer look at a more recently built model in the Harbor's Maritime Museum, and there's also one tied up on the docks outside if you want to see one afloat. Tomols are very much a product of this particular place. Built from redwood planks recovered as driftwood, sanded with sharkskin from local species, decorated with shells, sealed with the asphalt that bubbles up from underground at places like Carpinteria, just down the coast, or the more distant La Brea Tar Pits in L.A. These impressive canoes are unique to the Chumash and their neighbors to the south, and they reflect the profound connection between these cultures and the sea. Not far offshore what would have once seemed like limitless supplies of fish and marine mammals, and the Tomol was the ingenious Chumash solution to the challenges posed by seeking these animals on the turbulent open ocean. Their seafaring gave them access to the distant Channel Islands, where some of the oldest evidence of humans in North America has been found. This ancient relationship with the sea shaped Chumash technology, economy, and diet, but also culture. In the Natural History Museum's Chumash Gallery, a constant theme is art depicting sea life, and often crafted from it. The nearby Santa Ines Chumash Reservation still features a sea turtle on its flag. And not long after the airing of this episode, you should be able to visit what looks like a spectacular new cultural center there, to hear the Chumash story from their own mouths. For millennia, Theirs was the dominant human story on this coastline. 
It's a tale with a beautiful setting, one that seemed to provide an inexhaustible supply of all the things that make life livable. Standing anywhere on the coast and looking out across the endless Pacific, you can see why the thought that our comparatively tiny species could ever deplete the ocean's wealth of wildlife would have probably seemed laughable to the Chumash. And they wouldn't have been alone in their skepticism. As the science of ecology pioneered by Ed Ricketts up in Monterey came of age, it became clear that humans could cause devastating change to relatively small, isolated environments on land. But for a long time, received wisdom held that the sea was too vast for us to have any lasting impact on it. In 1969, an event just offshore of Santa Barbara presented an early challenge to this idea. The Monterey Formation is rich not just in fossils, but in oil. You can see the massive rigs designed to extract it looming along the horizon. When one of these rigs failed, it spilled tens of thousands of barrels worth of oil into Santa Barbara Channel. It was a disaster for local marine life, and a wake-up call that the seemingly eternal seas were much more fragile than had been thought. It spurred on the newborn environmental movement not just in California, but throughout the country, ushering in policy reforms and stricter regulation of potentially hazardous pollutants. But on a coast where everything is so closely tied to the oceans, not all of the impacts our species has on the waters of the California current are so easy to spot or to protect against. I saw the Heading north from Santa Barbara, you'll pass through Santa Maria, Pismo Beach, San Luis Obispo, and finally one last town before the human population drops significantly along the legendarily remote Big Sur. Morro Bay's location gives it the feel of a gateway between civilization and wilderness. Now, you could argue that the Big Sur hasn't been truly wild since the completion of Highway 1 in 1937 opened the area to the tourist hordes that still descend there. But more than any other town on the central coast, Morro Bay serves as a reminder that a far greater wilderness exists just offshore. Along a coastline where tourism is the dominant industry, it's one of only a handful of ports between San Francisco and L.A. with a major fishing fleet. Walk along the harbor, and you can still experience a way of life with roots going back thousands of years in the area. There are the fishing boats themselves, of course, tied up at the docks or heading out to sea against the backdrop of Moro Rock, the impressive monolith at the bay's mouth, and known to the Chumash as Lisamu. There's the small but comprehensive maritime museum in its collection that ranges from submarines to tugboats to Coast Guard rescue vessels. And there are the seafood restaurants at the north end of town, where you can order the catch of the day as it's being offloaded on the piers outside. There's something timeless about wandering a true working waterfront, which Morro Bay very much still is. Sitting at one of the dockside restaurants, I grew especially fond of the Libertine Brew Pub during the several days I stayed in Morro Bay, looking out over Morro Rock as the sun sets behind it and sea lions fish just below you, you could easily get the impression of a harmonious blend of human culture and nature at its most spectacular. But the rock itself is a very visible testament to the often unexpected ways in which our species has altered the oceans and their shores. Unbelievably, given its huge size, it used to be a lot larger. Major chunks of this ancient volcanic core have been quarried away. Much of that rock didn't go very far, 
serving as the raw material for the causeway that fort transformed Lisamu from an island into a peninsula. You can see causeways, jetties, and breakwaters like this all along the coast, and on a windy day when waves crash against them, it's easy to appreciate their importance to any seaside community. What's harder to appreciate is the effects these structures have on the coastal environment. Before California's 20th century growth spurt, sediment was dumped into the Pacific by the state's many rivers and streams, where complex interactions between waves, currents, and gravity would distribute them along the coast, feeding the sandy beaches that draw so many people here. Structures like the Morro Bay Causeway can cause breaks in this transport system, so much so that the state has recently needed to bring in sand from elsewhere to feed shrinking beaches. This is not a call for the causeway's removal, nor is it a condemnation of Morro Bay's city planners. When a harbor is a town's lifeblood, it should be protected as well as possible. But it is one of a countless number of examples of how everything we do has the potential to have unexpected ripple effects, even in as vast an environment as the North Pacific. Just as in the kelp forests of Monterey Bay, these effects can be hard to predict. Take the town's fishing fleet, for example. While industrial fishing has depleted the stocks of many of the world's popular food fish, a number of these species still could exist off of California in large enough numbers to support Morro Bay's economy. But not all species have proven to be resilient in the face of human harvesting. For a long time, Morro Bay could rightfully claim to be the abalone capital of the world, but these huge snails are as slow to breed and grow as they are beautiful and delicious, and their numbers plummeted catastrophically in the mid-20th century and remain perilously low today. It's not just abalone that have declined over the last century. Human impacts, intentional and, often, unintentional, have driven many animals, plants, and seaweeds into decline. But there is some good news. Murrow Bay's apparently harmonious relationship with the natural world is not just an illusion, and its most beloved residents show that it's not too late to walk back some of the nastiest changes our species has wrought on this coast. If you're visiting Morro Bay, it's very likely that you're there because of a particular animal. It's a species we've met before in this series, that linchpin of kelp forest and eelgrass beds, the sea otter. You can regularly spot them floating offshore from here to Monterey Bay, but nowhere will you see them at such close quarters as in Morro Bay. They particularly like areas with lots of seaweed or seagrass, and the stretch of harbor between the town center and Morro Rock fits the bill nicely. There are reliably a few near the rock itself, but a small park near the Maritime Museum provides the best viewing, with otters lounging just feet offshore. It'd be worth the trip even if sea otters were widespread and abundant everywhere, because there are few more charismatic animals in the world. But their presence in the bay is all the more remarkable because they were very nearly exterminated from the entire Pacific coast of the U.S. Fort Ross, the Russian fur trading post from the second episode of this series, is the most visible remnant of the era in which the seafaring nations of the world engaged in a trade war for the luxurious fur of sea otters. For years, it was thought that the devastation in California had been total, that none of the world's smallest marine mammals had survived south of Alaska. Surprisingly, it was the construction of the Big Sur Highway in the 20s and 30s that proved this wrong. Prior to the road's completion, the sheer cliffs and treacherous reefs there simply made it too hard for anyone to get to, 
providing a safe haven for otters. Not too far from the Bixby Creek Bridge, today one of the most photographed of Big Sur's many vistas, the highway's builders stumbled upon a cove with a living population of sea otters. John Steinbeck and Ed Ricketts celebrated their rediscovery in the Sea of Cortez, and the otters became a conservation icon well before the birth of the modern environmental movement. Their road to recovery was a bumpy one, involving an ill-conceived relocation program to the Channel Islands, and a lot of pushback from communities dependent on abalone harvesting. They were already starting to see the snails disappear, and understandably were skeptical about reintroducing a specialized shellfish predator. But in the long run, the recovery of California's sea otters has been a success story, and not only for the otters. Besides the stabilizing impact they have on eelgrass beds and kelp forests, both cradles of marine diversity, Otters themselves have proven to be a big economic draw for towns like Morro Bay. And they're not alone in having benefited from concerted preservation efforts. Not far to the north, at Piedras Blancas, you can see another marine mammal that has returned from the brink. Northern elephant seals were hunted not for fur, but for blubber, an insulating layer of fat necessary for living in California's cold waters. Like sea otters, they survived by chance, with breeding colonies hanging on on remote islands off of Baja. And, like otters, thanks to strict protections, they've been able to recolonize old territory along the mainland. At Piedras Blancas, you can get close enough to smell these huge seals and look into their puppy-dog eyes. Or, more spectacularly, to be ringside for the often lethally violent fights between males during the winter. The right time of year, the beach there is completely covered in elephant seals, an impressive testament to their comeback. The future of other species remains murkier. Sea otters and elephant seals, for the most part, have been able to take advantage of legal protection to breed prolifically and repopulate the coast with little extra help from us. Same is not true of another conservation icon. Big Sur is one of the few places you can see free-flying, wild California condors. There are many factors that led to the near extinction of these enormous vultures, most of them the direct result of human activity. It has, however, also been suggested, though by no means proven, that they'd been in decline since the extinction of Ice Age mammals like mammoths and ground sloths, and they survived in California only because the carcasses of whales and other marine mammals that wash up here provide enough carrion to support them. Whatever the reason, these magnificent birds were once extinct in the wild, existing only in captive breeding centers. They've rebounded to the extent that a few have been released, first along Big Sur, where they can be spotted fairly regularly. I've seen them at Julia Pfeiffer Burns State Park and much more recently by the Yurok on their traditional lands on the Redwood Coast. While it's an encouraging trend, the long-term success of condors remains tenuous, much as it does for the less charismatic, but arguably far more important, abalone. Santa Barbara's Sea Center is the best place to see the fruits of a captive breeding program for the white abalone, where tanks of small snails await their release into the wild. And if you're really lucky, some species are still just common enough that you may spot them at low tide on a rocky shore. But the deck may be stacked against abalone and other marine species. As we've seen, climate fluctuations are nothing new in California, but over the last few decades it's become increasingly clear that human-caused changes in climate don't just imperil a few species on a local scale. As our atmosphere warms, oceans warm along with it, becoming more acidic and less well oxygenated in the process threatening the foundations of even as diverse a marine ecosystem as the one fueled by the California current. The thought of such a spectacularly diverse place being decimated by an environmental catastrophe that we brought about is too tragic for words, and it would be easy to despair. 
Once again, though, the California coast doesn't just show us the worst impacts of human-caused change, but also gives us a blueprint for how we can face these challenges head-on. Morro Rock may awe visitors and sea otters may charm them, but a case could be made that neither is the most important of Morro Bay's natural wonders. The mudflats and eelgrass beds at the south end of the bay may be less photogenic, but it is the diversity of life they harbor that makes this place truly special. Just as at Point Reyes, the estuary here is actually a continuum of environments running from the muddy intertidal zone to the so-called elfin forest, where coast gives way to chaparral. Within these environments live everything from burrowing innkeeper worms to flocks of shorebirds, making up a food web that supports the bay's largest predators, sea lions, otters, and people. The rich environment fosters not only native wildlife, but also a relatively recent addition to the bay, oyster farms. In an era in which the oceans are changing like never before in human history, protected places like this are especially important, not only because they can help us take pressure off of an entire ecosystem, but because they can help maintain the towns that grew up depending on the sea's bounty. The enterprising aquaculturists that started growing oysters in Morro Bay clearly realized this, as does the community as a whole. While the watery parts of the estuary are protected by the state, large chunks of the shoreline, notably the Elfin Forest, are preserved by local groups. This range of protected areas is important, not only because it increases local engagement and not only because larger areas can preserve a greater range of environments and biodiversity, but because it creates connections between preserves. Much of the history of conservation has been written in California, in places like Yosemite, Redwood, and the parks of the Mojave Desert, and many of the lessons we've learned about it have likewise come from the Golden State. One of these is that connectivity really matters. Particularly in a changing climate, it's crucial for species to not only have large protected areas, but to be able to move between them as conditions require. What's true on land is also true at sea, and while they may be less well-known than their terrestrial counterparts, a series of marine protected areas off the coast dwarf nearby national parks both in terms of size and diversity. From Point Arena in the north to the Channel Islands in the south, much of the path of the California current is protected by national marine sanctuaries administered by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. The first of these was established around the Channel Islands in 1980, a direct response to the Santa Barbara oil spill. A year later, the Greater Farallon Sanctuary joined it, protecting the offshore waters from Point Arena to just north of the Golden Gate. When the importance and general weirdness of the undersea island known as Cordell Bank became clear, it too was added to the list. After a decade's hiatus, the rocky coasts, kelp forests, and marine canyons from Marin County to Big Sur were at last protected as Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Unlike national parks ashore, most of these places are inaccessible to landlubbers like us, which may be for the best. But over the last few episodes, we've explored just a small sample of the array of species that have benefited from the protection they offer, and that land-living visitors can catch glimpses of. We've also seen how having so many interconnected undersea parks has made a difference to animals living there. Without them, for example, it's unlikely sea otters would have spread as far as they have in the last few decades. And for large predators like whales and great white sharks, having such large tracts of sea to hunt in is absolutely crucial. 
Only one major link in this chain of marine reserves remains unforged. From roughly Morro Bay to Point Conception, the traditional lands and seas of the Chumash, an effort is underway to add a fourth marine sanctuary. The Chumash Heritage Sanctuary would close the gap between the Big Sur and Santa Barbara coasts, providing safe passage for life moving between the cool waters to the north and the warmer Channel Islands. Like any protected area, it can make a big difference in mitigating the worst impacts that our species has brought about in this corner of the ocean. But the relationship between us and the ocean is a two-way street. Over the last century and a half, we've changed it in ways that would have been inconceivable to our grandparents. But long before that, the seas molded coastal cultures around the globe. In the Santa Barbara area, it was the Chumash whose society was shaped by the California current and all that it provides. After millennia of coexistence with this uniquely rich coast, it's tribal members that are spearheading the movement to protect it, providing a model for preserving biodiversity and celebrating culture that the rest of the world would do well to follow. joining me on this voyage with the current. I timed this series to come out in fall of 2022 because on October 23rd, NOAA is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the National Marine Sanctuary System. Check out their website and social media for information about how you can join in this celebration. Better yet, take a look at their map of reserves and find the one closest to you to go visit. In the Atlantic or Pacific, the Gulf or the Great Lakes, each of the seascapes they protect has its own stories to tell. California's story is about currents and the biodiversity they feed. Even as a biologist, I hadn't appreciated just how jaw-droppingly diverse California's seas are, and I was so blown away that I'm already plotting a trip back, this time in the winter to experience some of nature's greatest migrations, so stay tuned for a future episode on those. If you want to plan a visit of your own, I'll be posting background information on our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, shortly. While there, you can also learn about the other destinations we've visited on voyages and contact me with questions, comments, or episode suggestions, which you can also do via email at voyagepod at gmail.com. And if you're not following voyages on social media, we're at voyagepod on Instagram and Facebook. As you might have gathered from the lengthy delay between the last episode and this one, things have been a bit hectic thanks to the beginning of our semester and a couple of major conferences coming right on each other's heels. Given that I'll be at one of those conferences in two weeks when I'd next be due to release an episode, there's a decent chance there'll be a delay. But rest assured, we've only begun to scratch the surface of the stories our world has to tell. Just as sea otters return to Morro Bay after shrugging off apparent extinction, I hope you'll join me to experience these stories on all the voyages to come. (laughs) ¶¶